This is the Flatlining Podcast. As you know, health is the largest chunk of the Ontario provincial budget. Yet, patients continue to endure very long wait times. There are calls for more doctors, for more nurses, for more hospitals. I was shocked back in February when Doug Ford's handpicked health minister said that his government would actually relieve the surgical and diagnostic backlog, which is at an epic level right now, by inviting the private sector, private hospitals. Those were the words that she used to come in and help heal, clear the surgical backlog. But privatization is not the answer. And New Democrats have always stood against privatization, notwithstanding that both Liberals and Conservatives brought privatized privatization to home care and long-term care. Our hospitals were crumbling for decades from a lack of investment. Even the, your Minister of Health said you starve the healthcare system. You stop talking to the doctors. You know, we have a great relationship with the doctors and, and the end right across all healthcare uh, <laughs> workers, but we're investing back into healthcare with record numbers. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Flatlining Podcast, the podcast that brings you great healthcare analysis and discussion each week. I'm Matthew Handley from Flatlining.net, and with me, as he has been, is the president and CEO of Fulcrum Strategies, what we would call a healthcare industry expert, Ron Harrigan. Ron, how are you? I'm great, Matt. How are you? I am doing really, really well, and we have a really interesting discussion uh, queued up for us in our program today, and it's something that I can just about guarantee you're not going to hear anywhere this side south of the Canadian border, and that's because we're going to be taking a look at kind of a niche thing, and that would be the Ontario Premier debate uh, that took place a couple of weeks ago, and it, to do a little bit of comparison, the, the Premier in Ontario is, is similar to the govern, governor of a state. Uh, and we'll, we'll be taking a look at what they were going at because in Canada, healthcare at the state, at the provincial level, plays a much more important role, uh, I would say, than it does here in the United States. And it's in part because of how their Medicare system is set up. So I hope we'll be getting into that uh, here very shortly. But we also want to start with something new today, and that is going through sort of a news and headlines segment. So without further ado, we're going to hop right into that. Monkeypox is here in the USA. Monkeypox is a less harmful cousin of the smallpox virus. And so far, there have been 160 confirmed cases of the illness and 28 suspected cases in more than 12 countries. That according to the World Health Organization. Health experts are warning against overreacting because monkeypox is a known virus and the smallpox vaccine protects you against this disease. Dr. Ashish Jha, the White House COVID-19 response coordinator, joined ABC News on Sunday. Uh, it, in uh, Massachusetts, at Mass General, uh, we have at least one confirmed case in New York, tracking others. I would not be surprised, Martha, if we see a few more cases in the upcoming days. Dr. Jha also said that it is not as contagious as COVID-19. The Department of Health and Human Services is warning healthcare organizations and the public sector of security threats posed by Russian hackers. Three of the four hacker groups operate under the direction of various Russian government agencies. Those hacker groups include Trula, APT29, and Sandworm. Another group, APT28, appears to be more standalone. The HHS recommends organizations update software and use multi-factor identification. 
Fortune has released its 68th annual list of the top 500 largest corporations by revenue. In fiscal year 2021, that included 77 healthcare companies. CVS Health ranked near the top in the fourth position. United Health Group came in at number five. Cigna was in the 12th spot, Anthem in the 20th, and Centene was at 26. Of the healthcare facilities, Nashville-based HCA Health came out on top at number 62. We've been hearing a lot about the baby formula shortage as of late, but another shortage is concerning hospitals and radiologists across the country. It's becoming increasingly difficult to get contrast dye for CT scans. A few weeks ago, a GE healthcare plant in Shanghai, China was shut down because of COVID-19 restrictions in that country. GE says they have since restarted production and even moved some of that production to a facility in Cork, Ireland. The shortage means that CT scans may be rationed, a word we use at flatlining that other people don't really like, and that routine tests may be postponed. It is possible that the supply will be back to normal by the end of June. For more headlines and news and analysis, subscribe to the Friday Pulse Check at flatlining.net. Ron, this contrast dye shortage is rather interesting because we have not had to ration something like CT scans before here in the United States. Yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting because in this country, you know, we have almost immediate access to everything. You know, we don't typically have to wait for a CT scan because we don't have enough scanners. We don't have to wait because we don't have contrast. You know, we, we really have almost instant access to healthcare here. And it'll be interesting to see how the public reacts when that's not there. And when we start facing some of the issues that other countries, like Canada, face only on a much broader and more deep scale, if you will. Because this may be one of the first times that I can remember where something from a healthcare perspective is rationed because there isn't enough supply of it. And, C- and CT scans are a fairly common uh, procedure, a fairly common tests that are done uh, that can diagnose a, a variety of different things. Yeah, they're used for everything from very urgent, immediate needs, which won't be rationed. Things like, you know, if you come in and they think you had a stroke, they'll Mm -hmm. do a CT scan. Um, That needs to be done right away. That won't be rationed. But other things will start to be put off for some time. And it's again, it's just not something that we're used to. I don't think it's anything that puts anybody's life in danger or anything like that. It's going to be an inconvenience, but an inconvenience that we just have never had to deal with in this country. And it's interesting, like I said, that we're comparing it to Canada today because Canada has some of the longest wait times for a lot of different things. And I checked the data on this today. And I'm and to be fair, I'm using pre-pandemic uh, wait time numbers. And I, let's see, where did I put those numbers on our sheet here? Wait times in Canada are high because of the wait cares ration. That's one of the things we talk about. And when we talk about wait times in regards to Canada, we're talking generally about the distance, the length of time it takes to by the time you meet a general practitioner who has then referred you to a specialist and the average wait time pre-pandemic was 28.8 weeks. And that's nearly seven months from going from your primary care doctor to a specialist. The shortest wait times are in Ontario at 16 weeks and the longest were in Prince Edward Island at 49.3 weeks, almost a year to go from primary care to specialist. 
Ron, can you speak a little bit first about why they ration care, why they ration specialist care in that way in Canada? Yeah, well, I think, first of all, the point, we've made this point before, every country rations health care, mm-hmm. period. They just ration it differently. In this country, they say that we ration it by income. Typically speaking, that if you have decent uh, income, you have insurance, you have access to very good health care, and you have almost immediate access to it. If you are a lower income, your access becomes less. So that's how we ration it. Canada, they ration it through access. Everybody has health insurance in Canada. It's a, it's a sort of a universal coverage um, country, but you don't get access to it right away. For example, like the wait time from a special, from a primary care physician to a specialist. But there's also other wait times. If you go to that specialist and you need surgery, the wait time before you get that surgery is there. Mm-hmm. There are some drugs that if you need them towards the end of the year might not be available because they've already used up their full allotment. So there's a number of different wait times in Canada. Healthcare is quote unquote free in Canada because it's provided by the government, but they ration access. Other countries may ration it through quality where it's free and you might have access, but it really isn't very good quality. So Mm -hmm. everybody rations, it's pick your poison, Canada rations through access. And it has become a real bone of contention up there because people don't like it. And access is one of the, the three parts of the, the healthcare equation that we keep coming back to. We, we want healthcare to be affordable, we want it to be universal, and we want to um, have it be high quality. And in Canada, it might be affordable and universal, but you're not getting the quality because it's being rationed based off that access. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, as an anecdotal point, I've had some, you know, stomach issues over the past year, and, and it took, I think, maybe three weeks for me to go from my primary care physician to seeing a GI specialist here, here in the Ann Arbor area, and even and even the longest thing I had to wait for was scheduling an endoscopy, and that was maybe a month and a half, and that's because of the backlog they'd had still from COVID, and it's significantly longer if you're waiting in Canada, and we used to talk in uh, a former place of work of mine that you would notice all of the Canadian license plates in our parking lot because we shared an office building with a lot of University of Michigan doctors and you'd have a lot of them drive across the border from Windsor and other spot places in Ontario to come get care in Michigan. Yeah, I mean there there are anecdotal stories of of Canadians crossing the bridge into Detroit knowing that they have a heart condition. They're on a waiting list, let's say, for cardiac surgery. They know what they're, what's wrong. They've been diagnosed. Mm-hmm. And walking into an emergency room in Detroit and complaining of chest pain. They already know what the doctor's going to so- find. They just want to have immediate care. So there are you know, anecdotal stories of that. There are plenty of stories of people in Canada waiting for things for long periods of time. Um, again, it's, it, it's really a matter of your perspective. If, if I was uninsured in America, well then, yeah, Canadian system is better for me because at least, you know, I'd rather wait for something I can't get here. You know, a wait is fine. If I have great insurance in this country, then the Canadian system's horrible. Why do I want to wait? I don't have to wait right now. I think the big concern that I have when people look across the border, and it's that same, you know, issue of looking over the neighbor's fence and the grass looks greener, and looking in the Canadian system and saying, that's the answer, well, it's the answer to one problem, but it creates a different problem. And I think the problem is many people look at the Canadian system and others with the fallacy of saying, well, we should just do that and we would have wonderful access and free health care. Mm-hmm. Well, no, then it wouldn't be at all affordable. You know, the tax increase that would have to happen to, to do that would be enormous. So 
again, it, the grass isn't always greener. We would be just trading one problem for a different one. Well, it's interesting you bring up the, you know, looking over the neighbor's fence thing. I, sometimes we hear critiques, particularly from people on, uh, I would say, on the right. Should Americans really care about what, how other countries handle health care, especially as we debate how we're going to do health care here in the United States? You know, I think it's always valuable to look at other systems and other processes um, to see if there's a better way to do it or to see what are the failures of that system or process. Um, I think the problem is you've got to look at it with eyes wide open. That's what bothers me when people say, well, if we just made it universal, all our problems would be solved. No. First of all, the people who have universal health care don't have all their problems solved. Right. And secondly, we have different problems in this country. You know, one of the things when you're comparing ourselves to Canada, the average health status of somebody in this country is much worse than in Canada. So if we tried their system, it would cost a lot more just because the, you know, the average health status is much worse. Mm -hmm. We have significantly more things of like diabetes and obesity and substance abuse. Um, even smoking here is higher than it is in Canada. So um, it's okay to look at another system and say, what could we learn from it? As long as you're doing it with eyes wide open and objectively and not with just this Pollyannish, well, that would solve our problems. There isn't a magic pill. Not when it comes to this issue. And I think that's perfectly demonstrated by what we want to talk about today, which was the premier debate in Ontario. The fact that there was this much disagreement among Canadian politicians as to how to handle health care specifically for the Ontario province, I, I think demonstrates that even, even though it may be settled to the point that they have a sort of single payer system, that the debate isn't fully closed yet on how to do health care within that system. Yeah, I, you know, I watched the debate um, and, and I found it interesting from a number of perspectives. One, that, you know, this system that we, that many in this country look to as euphoria, they look to as one of their biggest problems. You mm -hmm. know, they were complaining about it like it was their, you know, one of their major issues. And it is. Um, two, I found it interesting that part of the debate was people arguing that they should be more like us. You know, that they should right. allow some privatization in, that that would fix things. And three, and this is politics in general, and this is not meant to be at any party or anything. It's just politics. I loved how in 45 seconds, you know, some of the people were saying, well, I'm going to fix it. Right. With no real plan on how to do so. Or I'm going to fix it because I'm going to devote, you know, billions of dollars at it. Well, okay, where are you going to get that money? Um, and, and the same thing happens here. There have been a lot of promises by both parties to fix the U.S. healthcare system, just not a whole lot of real plans to do so. And I heard the same thing in the Canadian debate. A lot of plan, a lot of discussion about fixing it, with no real plans on doing so. But again, the primary thing is they're complaining about their system as vehemently as people in this country complain about our system. Exactly. Well, let's dive into a little bit about what was said in the debate, and I think it's important to preface it by just a, a, a brief primer on how healthcare works in Canada. They they have a program that they call Medicare, but it's not set up in the same way that we have Medicare in the United States. And one of the reasons we we constantly come to, back to Canada is because people like Senator Bernie Sanders, who, who is a prominent you know Democrat, or in, rather, I guess he's an independent in the Senate, but he runs on the Democratic ticket for president. 
has pointed to Canada as what he wants to do here in the United States with regards to his Medicare for all plans. And even though he says that, it's really not even set up the same way in Canada than what he wants to do in the United States. He wants a single payer across the board. Everyone has a Medicare card. In Canada, it's broken down by the provincial government. So each provincial government has a little bit of say of how they can run their healthcare system in their province. Another interesting point is that it's kind of set up like the NHS, where hospitals and hospital employees, including nurses, are technically government employees because it's a public hospital system run by the province. Ron, did you have anything that you wanted to add that you think is interesting that Americans should take note for when they think about the Canadian system? Yeah. The other thing, and you've set it up well when you talk about the provincial system and how it's set up. The other thing that's really interesting is the way Canada operates to some degree with the provinces you know, handling the budgets, if you will, is a lot like a thing called block grants. And block grants were an idea back when, oh, why am I drawing a blank? He used to be Speaker of the House. I'm drawing a blank on his name. Mm-hmm. Um, anyways, um, I'll, it'll come to me later. Republican Speaker of the House um, who wanted to do block grants for Medicaid. And basically the concept was the federal government would give a block of money to each state and say, there, you run your Medicaid with whatever you can do with with that budget. And everybody hated it. Well, I mean, everybody on the left hated it because it was a Republican idea. Well, that's very similar to how the Canadian budget handles it out to the provinces. We have states, they have provinces. Mm -hmm. And I find it interesting that it's, you know, on one hand, the, you know, the, the far left, if you will, or the more progressive of the Democrat Party loves the Canadian system. And in some ways, they're almost asking for what previous Republican administrations wanted to do with Medicaid. Right. Now, that's not entirely apples to apples, but I found that sort of an interesting distinction that isn't being made on those on those two different systems. But what's interesting, too, to me is that healthcare plays a much more important role on a local level than, than how we look at it here in the United States, I think. I mean, excluding Medicare, excuse me, excluding Medicaid um, and and things like CHIP, but we, where we have Medicare and we have national you know, insurers, it plays a much more local role in Canada than it does here, where a local yeah. politician can actually make a difference on how they do health care. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and it's just a, a slightly different way that they deal with it than we deal with it. So when we look at this debate, there were four people in the debate, but we're only going to be focusing on three of them because they're the three front runners. And and as we look at this, I want you to keep in mind, too, that Ontario, looking at wait times, is one of the better functioning provinces with healthcare in Canada. Uh, so as we look at that, keep that keep that in the back of your mind, because even in one of the best functioning provinces, it's still got a lot of problems. So we're going to be looking at three of the candidates. We'll be looking at Andrea Horworth. She's the leader of the Ontario New Democratic Party. We're going to be looking at Stephen Del Duca, who's the leader of the Ontario Liberal Party, and Doug Ford, who's the current premier, uh, the incumbent, and he's the leader of the Progressive Conservative Party, which sounds like an oxymoron in the United States, but it's it, it's closer to what you would have, I would say, as a not Trump Republican, but right-wing pro-business kind of person. So we're going to be looking at these and... You'll notice that Doug Ford is definitely playing defense through a lot of this because a lot of them are, you know, they're trying to unseat him from being uh, a premier. So take that in mind. We're going to start with uh, Andrea Horworth, leader of the Ontario New Democratic Party. Backlogs and surgeries are really 
hurting people. I met a woman not too long ago who has a knee surgery. She has to have both her knees done and she's on a long wait list. And she's at the point she can't even go up and down her stairs anymore. And now she's looking to, to see whether she can afford to buy a new home in this housing market. Uh, we do need to clear those surgical backlogs, but we know that our hospitals were on their knees prior to, uh, uh, prior to even Mr. Ford taking office. Uh, but then he started cutting in healthcare the minute he got elected, and then we had whole COVID. But privatization is not the answer. And New Democrats have always stood against privatization, notwithstanding that both Liberals and Conservatives brought privatiz privatization to home care and long-term care. We'll take it out. I think I should set this up with a little bit of context, too, that I forgot. And that's that Doug Ford has, in order to try and relieve some of this backlog, has tried to have some public-private partnerships or contract private facilities to do some of these surgeries. And that's what they're criticizing here when they talk about uh, having some privatization of healthcare. Ron, what are some of your initial takeaways of uh, Andrea Horworth's opening remarks? So I think initially, first of all, it's obvious this is a big issue or they wouldn't be debating it or she wouldn't take such a hard stance on this. And as you pointed out, Ontario is one of the best in Canada mm -hmm. wait times, and it's still a big issue for their province. Um, she talked about how their hospitals are on their knees. There's big surgical backlog. She used the anecdotal story of the person who couldn't get up and down the stairs. All of that's true. Okay. And it is a serious problem. Um, I didn't hear a solution there. Just that there was no. a problem yeah. and a, an attack on the attempt at privatization. Um, but it just, again, it points out that, that that yard on the other side of the fence that some people think is greener has some very, very significant problems. And in a difficult labor market, they're having similar problems with their labor market. It's probably only going to get worse. When you think about someone like her and, and, and someone, Stephen Del Duca is the same way. When you think about their policies for complete publicization, publicizing, I'm using the wrong words here, but complete government control of healthcare, including hospitals and surgery centers, you know, how do you think that's supposed to work? How do you think that works in Canada? And why was that the decision to do that in the first place? Well, so um, first of all, the decision to do it in the first place was around the sort of that, uh, and it's almost a a fundamental debate is healthcare a right or a privilege? Mm -hmm. um, and Canada, along with many other countries, deemed it to be a right and as such to be provided by the government. You know, we have in this country, you have a right to a free and public education. That's right. why we have government funded schools. Um, we have rights to other things um, that the government um, funds. They decided that healthcare was one of those. We, we decided it wasn't. Um, and so that's how it got sort of got started. The problem that that full control of the healthcare system, not just financing, but delivery, okay? Again, in this country, people are talking about the full control of the financing of healthcare, but not right. the delivery. Once you get into that, you run the same issues that historically ran in other governmental controlled delivery systems. The biggest one being, if you look at the Soviet Union, the old Russia, mm -hmm. um, how they tried to control the entire economy, the production of everything. And you run into real problems being able to meet demand. The economy doesn't become as nimble. They faced that during COVID. They couldn't flex as well as we did. And they're dealing with that now with these long wait times because what they did during COVID was the wait times just got worse. They weren't didn't have that ability to flex like um, sort of like we did. And, and they're dealing with it. 
So that's one of the downside of you know government control of healthcare delivery is it limits a lot of your ability to handle demand spikes. It also limits you know advances in technologies and you know um, new drugs, et cetera. You know, a few weeks ago, we were criticized for not being supportive of people being able to choose a doctor or, or a place where they're going to get care. The Canadian system really eliminates your ability to make that choice. And as an economist, can you speak a little bit to the monopolization of healthcare, not even necessarily by a government agency, but by, you know, if there was one company in the United States running all of the hospitals or in, in one state, you know, you had the Michigan hospital system or the North Carolina hospital system, and that was the only option that you had. How would that affect care here in the United States? Well, what I, um, what I try to draw in this country, the analogy to that is, um, how many people in this country sing the praises of the U.S. Postal Service? Usually right. not many. Yeah. You know, I mean, it, it works, but it's not like I hear anybody going, wow, you know, the post office just did the greatest service for me. Um, it's usually one of those things that we look at as sort of an annoyance. And it's part of the reason why a whole private industry was created, you know, with FedEx and UPS and all these other companies that can make money doing it, in essence, better, cheaper, faster. Um, so when you have that sort of full government control and only one supplier of something, it really takes away a lot of the drivers for that supplier to really do it well and provide an excellent service. You know, FedEx knows that they have to do it well. And they know that every time one of their drivers is on a YouTube video abusing a package, that mm -hmm. hurts and that driver get, loses their job because they know there's UPS. And UPS knows that if they don't do it well, there's another company that will do it. So that competition in what we have really increases quality and service. Um, and you lose that when the government has full control of it or, the, or there's only one monopolistic supplier. And here in the United States, we have our, our government and our economy set up in such a way that you can have, for certain things like the post office, you can have competing private industries with what the right. government services are. I mean, right. you, have the, you have the Veterans Affairs hospitals and then you have all right. of your university hospitals and your private hospitals. Right. Exactly. Exactly. The other thing that that sort of solo control does, because it, it, it also controls wages um, mm -hmm. and the, the price of labor. So, you know, you got to ask yourself this. If you were a truly phenomenal, you know, pick a specialty, orthopedic surgeon, well, you know that your salary in Canada is going to be limited to X dollars. Right. You know that you could move to the United States and make significantly more. Well, why wouldn't you? So it creates this sort of talent drain or the potential for a talent drain, um, especially when the country that you could move to speaks the same language and is, you know, within, you could drive there. It's not like you're, you're you know, switching to an entire different mm -hmm. continent. So that's another concern. And, and Canada's faced that. And actually, we'll, we'll get to that in just a second with Bill 124, but we're going to play Stephen Del Duca's opening remarks first, because he's the one that called on, he's the first one in this debate that called on Doug Ford to repeal Bill 124. Well, like I suspect, like most Ontarians, I was, I was shocked back in February when Doug Ford's handpicked health minister said that his government would actually relieve the surgical and diagnostic backlog, which is at an epic level right now, by inviting the private sector, private hospitals. Those were the words that she used to come in and help clear the surgical backlog. An Ontario Liberal government will focus on building up public health care, 
We'll clear the surgical and diagnostic backlog within two years by investing a billion dollars in new money to make sure that our operating rooms are running 24-7 and on weekends and evenings, that MRIs and CT scans are also boosted. We're going to bring 100,000 new healthcare workers online within six years, and we're going to do it within the public system by scrapping Bill 124 and truly valuing our frontline Thank healthcare you workers. Thank you very much. All right. So th- there's few things I want to dive into there. First, good luck with the CT scans with the dye shortage. We'll see how that goes right now. Mm-hmm. But uh, the first thing, I, I want to talk about the 24-hour surgery centers because that is an idea that I have not heard before. But I want to talk first about Bill 124. And this was something that Doug Ford's government passed back in 2019, so pre-COVID, that essentially froze all provincial employee salaries Uh, they say it froze. Really, it capped raises at 1%. And part of the reason that they did this, the the bill that they passed, the summary says that they wanted to ensure that increases in public sector compensation reflect the fiscal situation of the province and are consistent with the principles of responsible fiscal management and protect the sustainability of public services. Well, when all your hospitals are government run, your nurses and your doctors are all now government employees and their raises are now capped at 1%. And we were just talking about, Ron, as you mentioned, you have the brain drain of people wanting to leave to go to other places because they can get paid more. Though it's not clipped in here, the fourth candidate, who we're not really concerned about because he wasn't, he's not very likely to win. Uh, he pointed out an anecdotal story of a nurse that does travel across the, the Rainbow Bridge in Niagara to go work in Buffalo, New York, and go h- back home to Ontario every day. Yeah, so... Um there were a couple of things to unpack. You're absolutely right. You know, when you start capping wages, um, people can be mobile in their work. There, there are wonderful wages to be made in this country right now as a traveling nurse. So a nurse could, you know, keep their address or their house in Ontario, spend a year traveling around the U.S., seeing the U.S., and make an enormous amount of money compared to what they'd make in Ontario, mm-hmm. which is great for that nurse, but it takes a nurse out of their system when they need it. Um, and so just like a brain drain, you can get a talent drain um, coming out of there, and that's happening. So that was one thing that I, you know, that I think is, is good to point out. A couple other things in what he said, which I found interesting. So we're going to eliminate the backlog in two years. Yeah. Well, if you're waiting for your hip replacement today, that doesn't help you a whole lot. Right. Two years is a long time. And we're going to do so by a billion dollars of, quote unquote, new money. Now, I don't know what new money is. Um, and I also noticed he didn't say how he was going to get it and what that would do to the economy if that comes to tax increases. But I thought that was sort of an interesting, you know, we're going to fix it in two years um, and we're going to find this billion dollars, I guess, lying around somewhere. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing was adding 100,000 sort of employees over six years. Okay. This just points out how bad the problem is. And how difficult it is to sort of fix. Now, this isn't an endorsement of, of Doug Ford, but basically what Doug, the current premier, was trying to do is saying, look, I got a budgetary problem like a lot of governments do right now. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to try to cap wages. And the way I'm going to fix the, the demand issue is to rather than me spending all this money to build more surgery centers, to build more, I'm going to let some private industry come in. And I'll just pay them what I would otherwise pay out of the budget for a surgery, but let them spend the money to build. You know, so one could argue from a fiscal perspective, you know, that's not a bad plan and probably more likely to alleviate the backlogs faster than a two-year time frame. Now, it has its own problems, and that's what he's being attacked for, in that it goes 
really and, and creates a crack in this whole foundation of a government-provided, government-supplied healthcare system. And I think what the others are worried about is that once you develop a crack, the whole thing could come crumble. And probably worried that those for-profit, if you will, or private surgery centers and hospitals might provide a better level of service. And then the Canadians might want to demand that. Well, the interesting thing about that, I thought, was that it sounds an awful like how we do Medicare currently in the United States. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have a you Absolutely. have a government funded system that contracts with with public and private hospitals to perform those Medicare procedures and and visits and tests uh, on patients. Yeah, and and it is it's very much like it, and, and it's also parallel if you're sort of a history buff to what a lot of people think happened to sort of the downfall of the old Soviet Union. You know that there was a lot of this government controlled supply and and especially let's say food production. And what they started to do was allow people to have their own little food plots. Mm-hmm. And it almost became its own little private industry. And the interesting thing was those little food plots were much more productive than the big government-run farms. And a lot of people looked to that and saying, well, that was really part of the start of the downfall because the population got to see what it was like in a more efficient production situation and then demanded more and more of it. You know, a question that I that I just had that I and I do not know the answer to, and I don't know if you will either. But philosoph- so there's kind of the philosophical mindset behind Canada's Medicare system, and that is that what we talked about before. It's a right, so everyone is entitled to it, and the government needs to pay for it. And then you have their system where it's broken down by provinces. It's kind of like we talked about with the block grants. Each province gets a budget, and they can determine how they're going to do that on their own. Do you think that it violates their their principle that healthcare is a right that under the Ford government in on in Ontario that they have decided to use some of their budget to say we're going to pay some of these private people to do it? Do, do you think that violates the the spirit or the philosophy behind having a government run healthcare system? You know, I would argue that if you look at it objectively, um, it doesn't. Because, like in this country, take the same thing with schools. We have charter schools here. We have other schools. You know, um, the right means you have, in my estimate, you have the right to the health care. How it gets financed or provided doesn't necessarily um, violate that right. You're still getting the health care, and you're still not having to pay for it. Um, Whether the government subcontracts that out to a private entity or not, I don't understand how that violates the right. Now, I do understand how it would violate a foundation of what, you know, some of their political party's beliefs are, but I don't mm-hmm. think it violates the, the core function of it being a right. Um, and the other thing, and I, I know you may, you may be getting there later, but I don't want to lose it, is I do think it's important to have a little bit of discussion around this concept of, you know, having ambulatory surgery centers or ORs running 24-7. Yeah, I was that getting one, there. Yeah, that one really struck me as, is potentially dangerous. And here's here's the issue and the yeah. reason why we don't do that. So in this country, there are definitely ORs, you know, in an emergency situation, if you roll into an ER with a bad auto accident in the middle of the night, you're going to the OR at O-Dark 30, okay? Mm-hmm. But for regularly scheduled stuff, there's a specific reason why typically elective surgeries start very early in the morning and they end, meaning the surgeries really aren't happening much after about three in the afternoon. And the reason has to do with 
the ability to function as a human. You know, we know that we're more alert in the morning. Mm-hmm. Everybody's had that post-lunch sort of drowsiness. And that after a certain number of hours, and especially later in the afternoon, that sharpness, if you will, starts to go away. I don't know as I want to have my surgery done at 2 o'clock in the morning. Right. Especially if that shift has been too long. So, you know, I conceptually understand the comment about wanting to make best use of the physical space and try to run as many patients through each OR as possible. But you start running ORs a whole lot longer than what we run them typically here. And you really run into a real question about whether or not that becomes dangerous. Um, And so that's, again, why we don't do it here. Um, it's also why in the things that can't be scheduled, and I look at like deliveries and C-sections, why those doctors that are on call are spending a whole 24 hours at that hospital and they get used to that being up or, or able to have intermittent sleep for 24 hours. And then that next day, they're typically not doing any work. They're trying to recover for what they call mm-hmm. their call day. That's one where you have to do that because you can't tell a baby to wait for 12 hours to be right. delivered. Um, but I, yeah, I thought that was sort of an interesting comment by somebody who probably doesn't clearly understand the delivery of healthcare as, uh, as a solution. Well, and you know, this brings up two, two, two points that I, I think that are interesting there is that one, you can even think about the cost uh, perspective of this. You know, how much is it going to cost the provincial government to keep a surgeon? And anesthesiologists and nurses and uh, physician assistants there all night long to do these 24-hour surgery centers. And I imagine that it would probably – I mean, if say if you're running them now from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. and now you're going to run them 24 hours, you just doubled your ASC budget right there. Well, you, you also theoretically would have to have twice as many surgeons. Right. Um, you know, a, a perfect example is there's a reason why they won't let – long-haul truckers drive more than a certain number of hours before mm-hmm. they have to have so much sleep. You can't double the number of, sur- of surgical hours available with the same number of surgeons. You can just ask the guy to, you know, to do surgery for 24 hours straight. Um, and so if, you're, if your surgeons are already busy, and they are, doing surgery through daylight hours, what surgeons are going to do them at night? Um, because whoever did the night surgery can't do day surgery the next day. They're, they're you know, they're sacked out. So that was another problem I had with it was where are you going to get the other, you know, the doubling of surgeons that you need? Cause right. you know, and, and anesthesiologists and surgical nurses and, you know, all the other people that have to be in that room to make that happen. The other point that I thought of that, that is interesting to think about, and it's something we can think about here in the United States as well is who ought to be making decisions about our healthcare. And when you hear comments like this from someone who I, I have not done a ton of research into Stephen Del Duca other than his healthcare policy, but he does does not appear to me to be someone who is an MD or has experience working in a healthcare uh, field. Should putting aside Canada for a second, but even here in the United States, you know, we get frustrated with sometimes with some of the payers, some of the insurance companies, because they just don't seem either they don't know or don't care how healthcare actually works when you do it at the ground level. Who should be making decisions about healthcare? Do you think should we try? Should we be trying to elect more doctors and nurses to be in our, you know, in our government to make these decisions? Well, it's a it's a great question, and and it really part of it has to do with, uh, I think, with who's the right person to make the right 
decision and which decision. You know, one of the advantages of uh, independent practice of medicine, for example, in this country, is the doctors making the ultimate decision about how things get done. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not an employee of a government or some big system that will tell them something. What right. happens in Canada if, with the doctors being employees, if their employer, the government, says, look, I know you're used to doing surgery in six-hour blocks or seven-hour blocks, but we need you to do 12-hour blocks. And the doctors say, well, that's dangerous. Well, I don't care. I'm your employer. You have to do it. In this country, the surgeons don't do that because they know it's dangerous and they don't want to be the one mm-hmm. you know, creating the danger. So um, I, I definitely think there's a, a bifurcation that needs to happen on clinical decisions need to be made by clinicians who are adept to do it. I'm not adept to do it. Um, mm-hmm. And sure, administrative decisions, financing decisions, et cetera, can be made by the people who are comfortable with that. But when it steps across the line into a clinical decision, my opinion is it should be made by a clinician. We want to make sure we, uh, in, in the time we have, we want to make sure we also get to Doug Ford because he is the current premier and he is running for reelection. Um, and I'm not sure about where the polls have him at right now, uh, but it's it seems to be tight enough that these three candidates have have a role. I'm also not positive, as I'm thinking about it, that it could that the the premier, excuse me, the the provincial government could actually be set up in a parliamentary system so that uh, what's really happening is whoever takes the majority rule in their parliament is going to is going to do that. And if there's no majority rule, I think I saw that there's going to be talk of uh, Stephen Del Duca and Andrea Horworth putting together a kind of a, you know, a a coalition government to run the province. And that's, that's just part of how a parliamentary system works. Uh, But leaving that aside, uh, Doug Ford's the, is the current premier. He's the leader of the progressive conservative party. Uh, We talked about his ideas with public private partnerships that are kind of like what we do with Medicare here in the United States. If his name sounds familiar, I just want to point this out. That's because his brother, Rob Ford, made the news, I think, like 10 years ago for being caught. He was the mayor of Toronto, Rob Ford, Mm -hmm. and he was caught on video doing crack cocaine, uh, which as mayor of Toronto, which was kind of weird. Uh, so just in case you're wondering where that if, if it's the same guy, it's not. It's his it's his brother. But we'll listen to what his opening statement was in the debate. Well, when we came into office, uh, our health care system was broken. You know, it was on the brink. It was already stretched to the, the max. And uh, we inherited hallway health care. Very, very clear. And I, everyone knows it. Our hospitals were crumbling for decades from a lack of investment. <clears throat> Even the, your minister of health said you starve the health care system. You stop talking to the doctors. You know, we have a great relationship with the doctors and, and the end right across all healthcare uh, <clears throat> workers. But we're investing back into healthcare with record numbers. We're investing over, over $40 billion in new hospitals, 50 projects right across every single region. We're hiring 8,000. We've already hired 8,600 healthcare Mr. Ford, I'm sorry. Workers. I'm going to have to cut you off. I will say I do appreciate how the they seem to actually adhere to the time limits on their debates. Mm-hmm. We don't we don't really do that with our uh, governor or presidential debates. Uh, he's playing defense uh, in part because everyone seems to be going after him because he is the incumbent. Uh, and he talked about investment in new hospitals and new facilities. And you did hear Stephen Del Duca in the background criticizing him because of those uh, private investments. Ron, what do you have? Uh, what are your thoughts on his his opening remarks? Well, you know, you, you hit it well. He's playing defense. He's trying to go to his record. But here's what I thought was really interesting. 
if you just took some of the statements and didn't put it in context with somebody and said, our healthcare system is broken, it's on the brink, we are stretched to the max. If you played that clip and talked about healthcare, somebody in this country would think that they were talking about our healthcare system. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay, much the same language. And, and in some respects, both were right. His healthcare system is on the brink, it's broken because they can't serve the needs of their constituents. Our healthcare system is broken and on the brink because we can't cover everybody in this country and their needs. We can't pay for what it would take to cover everybody. So I, again, I just, I find this interesting that we're both broken and there are people there that probably look at our system and go, man, I wish we had that. And there are people here that look at their system and say, man, I wish we had that. Do you think, and it, what's interesting, well, I'll, I'll backtrack a little bit and give a little background. The interesting thing about Doug Ford is that there was 15 years of kind of a progressive liberal rule in Ontario when he came in and he's, he's, he came to power in 2018 and he was definitely the outsider at the time. Um, and it appears that even among the three candidates there that he continues to be the outsider by having this privatization. Do you think, um, I mean, obviously, if, if he wins his reelection, that it'll, it'll probably continue to a certain extent. Do you think people like Bernie Sanders here in the U.S. look to someone like Doug Ford and say, maybe we should try that? Or do you, you know, the way that they're using, kind of using their government funds to send people to the private hospitals? Or do you think Bernie uh, wants to make more control over over uh, the, the hospitals and the ASCs we have in the U.S.? Um, no, I, 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 you know, first of all, I think... I have a lot of respect for Bernie Sanders. I mm-hmm. may not agree with some of his positions, but he's consistent. Yeah. And that's not something yep. you can say about a, a many politicians who have been in the game as long as he is. He's always thought this. I also think that in his heart, Bernie believes that what he thinks is much better. You know, again, so I, I can't fault the guy who has that deep-seated belief and is as consistent as he is when he knows that it has hurt him in some elections. Um that being said, I think in some respects, Doug and Bernie are similar in that Doug is trying to, you know, swing a sledgehammer at the foundation of what is Canadian healthcare, um, government run, government controlled, government financed. And Bernie is trying to swing a sledgehammer at the foundation of what is the U.S. healthcare system, independent, private, you know, some government financed, but, but not government controlled. And so I think they're sort of same person, different, you know, different issues. I don't know that I think Bernie looks at Doug and says, boy, maybe we should try that. I truly think that Bernie believes that um, there should be no profit or profit taking in any of healthcare. And the easiest way to start is with the insurance companies. But I think if he had gotten there, he would apply that same thing to for-profit hospitals or you know, doctors being able to make, you know, whatever their income is based on how much they can do and bill. Um, I think Bernie just believes that profit is an inherent um, cancer in healthcare and shouldn't be there. And again, I, I respect the guy for having a consistent belief. I, I can disagree with him and still respect him. I mean, absolutely. I, I, I definitely agree that it's better to be consistent and disagree with someone than to, uh, Than to to sit there and kind of flip flop, as it seems a lot of people have done over the years. And at least with Bernie Sanders, he's been—he has struck me as someone who's been more amenable to appearing on people's programs who disagree with him. Mm -hmm. Uh, If I recall, when when the Democratic National Committee 
said that Fox News couldn't host any of their debates during the 2020 election. Uh, Bernie, I think, was the first one that said, I'll go to a town hall on Fox mm-hmm. News and and because, you know, I've got to reach more people, the better. Bernie is uh, currently 80 years old, older than President Biden, who's 79. Looking forward to 2024, do you, I, I mean, I'm not going to ask you to speculate if, if he'll run again, but do you think we'll see his style of Medicare for all pop up in the 2024 election? Um, I think it'll pop up in the primaries. Okay. Um, uh, I don't, you know, so I think there will definitely be at least one, if not two candidates, um, potentially in the primaries. Um, and if, you know, if the, the next candidate, assuming Biden doesn't run, I don't think he will. Um, I don't think he wants to, um, so assuming he doesn't run and they they have a primary, if that candidate wins, then clearly it will. Um, if a more sort of moderate candidate wins, I think they'll avoid going that far into the Medicare for all um, because they know that that um, isolates them away from a lot of the more moderate or middle stage mm-hmm. voters. Um, so if I had to make a thoughts, I don't think we're going to get a strong push for Medicare for all in 2024 um, because I personally think it'll be a more more centrist, more moderate um, candidate who will win the, you know, the the primary. Now that being said, and to put the qualifier in this, I didn't think that Trump was even going to win the first time he right. won the primary, let alone the election. So you know, tells you how good of a predictor I am. <laughs> well, I, I I don't think we can point to Trump and say that you're a bad predictor because uh, I believe on the night of the election, I I'm almost positive it was five thirty eight. 538.com had like Hillary Clinton winning by like 70% or something like that, yeah. which obviously did not happen. Um, oh, I'm in, I'm in good company on people who yeah. missed that one. That's like, that's, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, the other interesting thing too is a, a provincial government and even really the, the parliamentary government of Canada, the prime minister almost has more power over the healthcare system than what the president of the United States has. And I say that in part because our healthcare decisions are going, you know, while they may be guided by the the party in the White House, uh, you got to get it through uh, both houses of Congress. Mm-hmm. And especially now where you have a 50-50 split in the Senate and you have a slim Democratic majority in the House, which most analysts seem to think are the, the House is going to flip um, and the Senate still seems to be up in the air with uh, Biden still as president. When we get to 2024, even if we have a far-left Democratic candidate who really, really loves Medicare for all, if Congress isn't there, there's not much they can do about that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, if, if let's take paint the picture where, you know, let's say whatever Democrat wins 2024, but the Republicans control the House and the Senate, yeah, there's nothing that they're going to get through on health care reform. Let's remember that the Affordable Care Act, the last big piece of health care legislation that got through, mm-hmm. if that had been delayed another three weeks, it would have never happened. Right. It got through in the, sort of almost on Christmas Eve, the December before the Democrats lost control. And it barely got through at that stage. I mean, they had to make a lot of compromises to get it through the House like getting rid of the public option. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that was a much more, um, a much bigger uh, numbers advantage for the Democrats. So they, and they learned their lesson from the previous attempt, Hillary Care, 
right. you know, got put on hold. And by the time they tried to resurface it, the Republicans had taken control and it never happened. So, you know, clearly if we've got a, any sort of a split government with one party controlling the White House and another party controlling either the Senate or the House, it ain't happening. And the Republicans learned their lesson, too, during the Trump administration when they couldn't repeal it as well. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. With, uh, so. John, the late John McCain, I believe, was the mm-hmm. one striking that striking that down. And I think yep. he did it more on principle of the fact that there wasn't anything in place to replace it. Um, and that, that could be a debate for another day. Yeah. You know, we're of course, we're operating on the assumption that Biden isn't going to run again. I commented back during the State of the Union that Biden focused a good amount on health care because I think he knows that that's an issue that Americans care about. Um, the Republican response didn't. Uh, they focused primarily on COVID restrictions and we didn't like this. And they were kind of doing what I hope, kind of doing what the Democrats did a little bit in 2020, even though it worked to their advantage then, which was just say, we're everything that Trump is not. Mm-hmm. And I have not seen a clear healthcare proposal from the Republicans uh, since the State of the Union or really since the 2020 election. I don't want to say the Republicans don't care about health care, but they don't seem to have anything um, ready to present to the American people coming coming this November or in 2024. Yeah, I mean, I haven't seen anything um, as far as a, a – and I remember I told you it would come back to me, Paul Ryan, yes. uh, the previous mm-hmm. Speaker of the House. Um, I haven't seen anything come out of the Republican Party as far as what looks like a plan, whether you agree with it or not, since Paul Ryan. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I think it's not a function that they don't care. I don't think it's a function that they aren't smart people and couldn't come up with a plan. I think it's a function of right now the numbers show that the best way to win an election is to be anti your opponent and not for something else. And and I, I this is not an attack on the Republican Party. If things flip and they control the White House and the Senate and the House I think you'll see the Democratic Party do much the same thing because it what it's what wins. If you are not the incumbent, the best way to win is to tear down your opponent rather than mm-hmm. to propose your own ideas. That's really sad. But but you're absolutely right. I haven't seen a plan, anything that I could call anything that looks concrete. And the the anti my opponent thing is not unique to America as we saw in the debate nope. that we just talked about. I mean, all of those candidates were just constantly, we're going to do the opposite of what Doug Ford and the the progressive conservatives have done. We're going to get rid of the privatization and everything. Whereas Doug Ford seemed to be the only one that said, hey, I've got a unique idea. Let's try this, or we're going to keep doing the policies that I'm doing. Which, I mean, for better or for worse, that's about all that an incumbent can do. Mm -hmm. Yep. Well, as we close out this discussion, I I guess I want to pose this question to you. When we look at statements from Senator Sanders that say, hey, we want, you know, a single payer system like Canada. Do you think, and I know I've asked you this before, but I think it's important to rehash it since we spent the whole hour talking about Canada today. Do you think a Canadian style system, even if what they're doing in Toronto, excuse me, in Ontario, uh, do you think that a Canadian style system would work in the U.S.? Oh, absolutely not. Um, first of all, it would be extremely difficult just to replace the financing system in this country with a government-run financing system. Mm-hmm. That would be – there are a huge number of even operational issues to be able to do that. Replacing the delivery system, okay, meaning that every doctor would have to become a governmental employee 
All right, let's think about that for right. a minute. Yeah. There's a million doctors in this country that would all have to become governmental employees. Okay, a huge percentage of those doctors are over the age of 55. Okay, I think the last time I saw the number, it was like almost 50% of all practicing physicians are over the age of 55, which means many of those could say, eh, I'm going to retire. Right. So if the government came out and said, hey, your only ability to provide your trade, your skill, is to become an employee and here's your salary, and even only 10% of the doctors said, I'm out, I'm retiring. It's a hundred thousand doctor shortage immediately, and I think the number would be higher than ten percent. Okay, plus I think there's some very serious constitutional challenges of taking away their their livelihood and forcing them into becoming a, a governmental employee. So there, there's a number. So I, a I don't think it would work, and it wouldn't solve our problem. It would just create a much worse problem somewhere else. Um, yes, everybody would have health care. But um, it would create an enormous problem somewhere else. Um, so, you know, I think that, you know, saying that the, we want the Canadian system here and everything it entails couldn't happen, wouldn't happen, and would be an incredible disaster. You know, uh, Churchill sometimes quoted as saying democracy is the worst form of government except for all the rest. It almost seems that America's healthcare system is the worst healthcare system except for all the other ones that are out there sometimes. But, and that's a, that's a great sort of um, analogy or picture to it is, yeah, we got, we got some serious problems here, um, but so does everybody else. Yeah. Um, and, and I think their problems, um, if you take our society and put them into their problems, would be even worse. Well, I, we are just about out of time, and I think we're going to have to leave it there. Ron, this is, as always, it's been educational for me, and I hope it has been for our listeners as well. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. The Flatlining Podcast is a production of Flatlining.net and Fulcrum Strategies, copyright 2022, all rights reserved. Be sure to subscribe to the Flatlining Podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts, and sign up for our weekly newsletter at flatlining.net flatlining.net just put your email right there promise we're not going to spam you we'll just send you my friday pulse check in this podcast every week for ron howergan i'm matthew handley have a great week